Welcome to the 14th Galley Beggar Press podcast. In this edition, the winner of the 2021 Galley Beggar Press Short Story Prize, Edward Hogan, will read his wonderful story, Single Sit. There's also a conversation between me and Edward after that recording, so please stick around. But first, here's Edward reading Single Sit. Single Sit. Rising through the downs, Frank called his eight o'clocker from the car, half hoping she'd cancel. He looked out the window as the phone rang. A heat wave had stripped the landscape. Nothing out there but hay bales and evening shadows. She picked up. That Mrs Cortez, he said. Yeah, who's this? The bad news. Mrs Cortez was northern. Despite the name, he heard the twang through his speakerphone. Frank McCann, South Coast Conservatories, calling to confirm our appointment. Oh, I almost forgot. I'm finishing my dinner, but yeah, I'm here. I'd really like to meet Mr Cortez too and show him the designs. Is he there, or is it just yourself this evening? It's just me. Right, Frank did his little laugh. Only I know my wife would never let me choose a conservatory alone. She's got better taste than me, for starters. Frank and Eleanor had been divorced for 20 years. We're separated, Mrs Cortez said. Trust me, Frank. I buy what I want. Lovely. I'll be there presently. A revenge conservatory, Frank thought, hanging up. Even if he sold it tonight, the order would be cancelled eventually. That he'd accepted the lead at all was a sign of how bad things had got for him as a rep or design consultant and for the industry in general. In the 90s, he'd have flat out refused a single sit. A single sit northerner. On a street, he sat in the car, vaping with the window down. This cul-de-sac of 1960s bungalows in Woodingdean had once been a gold mine. He'd done plenty of business here back in the day when he worked in windows. The residents had been upwardly mobile but not too posh for UPVC. Some houses backed onto the South Downs Way and had sea views if you strained your neck. But his heart sank when he got out the car and walked down the drive. Through the bay window he saw a wall lined with bookshelves. Middle-class people did not buy conservatories. Stay open to the possibility of yes, he told himself as he rang the bell, repeating the mantras from his motivational CDs. You only get what you expect. Keep asking the question. A tall, broad woman opened the door, early forties, short shock of brown curls, She held a bowl of noodle soup. You must be Frank, she said. I promise I will be, his classic opener. She smiled, revealing big, regular teeth. She wore a grey running vest, straps of a luminous green sports bra visible on her shoulders, cut off leggings like seal skin, her eyes a glassy green. She led him through the house, Saffron sofas, green rugs, 
the old walls of the bungalow knocked through. As she slurped the last of her noodles at the kitchen breakfast bar, he noticed a tattoo on the inside of her arm, depicting a ruler like the one Frank's daughter had used at school. The ruler extended from the wrist, up her forearm, six inches by its own authority. It had the word shatterproof on it. It's been another stunning day, Frank said. Good old global warming. What would be nice, he said, mock stroking his chin, is if you had some sort of comfortable shelter, a predominantly glass structure perhaps, from which you could enjoy such pleasant evenings. Imagine. A bass thud came from deep in the bungalow. Frank visualised Senor Cortez in a back room with a mariachi band and a collection of torture implements, although he got no bad vibes here. Some houses he did. Mi son, she said, nodding in the direction of the noise. How old? Eleven. She tapped a photo on the fridge of a slight kid with thick black hair. Great age. He can help me measure up. He's going to bed. So early? He has a sleep condition, Mrs Cortez whispered. Ah. So, Frank, how's business? Fantastic. We're very busy on account of this summer offer. Is that so? Builders struggle when the weather turns, so we've knocked off 30% for a limited time to get the job done quickly for people like yourself. I see. You wouldn't want to be building in midwinter. A pain for the fitters, a pain for you. Nobody buys a conservatory for Christmas. And when does this summer offer finish then? End of August. Ooh, I'd better act fast then. Frank wondered if she was taking the piss. Well, you need to be sure, obviously. What are you going to do, Frank, when the offer finishes? It'd be much harder to sell at full price, surely. Well, unless, she said, holding up a finger, unless there's another offer, an autumn offer, and then a winter sale. She was definitely taking the piss. Conservatories are a luxury item, Mrs Cortez. People pay because they're reassured by quality. We're not talking about windows here. Windows, which had lifted the unwanted, half-raised, unteachable Frank out of the 80s doll queue and given him the money to take a girl like Ellie to the pictures. Windows, which, after Mrs Thatcher sold the council stock to its proud occupants, had bought Frank a house of his own. And then, after the divorce, two smaller houses. Windows, which had granted him country club membership and foreign holidays, which had sent his daughter Jodie to university, which had forced the branches of his family tree up towards the light before the bubble burst. Nothing wrong with windows, Mrs Cortez said. It'd be dark in here without them, but a conservatory is a lifestyle choice. Look, I'm sorry, she said, I'm being a bitch. I'm a woman on my own and sometimes I get carried away trying to show people, men, that I won't be pushed around. Wouldn't dream of it, Mrs Cortez. 
I'll take you through to the garden. A dry stone wall separated her yellow lawn from the downs. Peachy pink light and blue shadows filled the fields, which sloped away at a crooked angle to the ruled line of the English Channel. On the horizon stood the wind farm, a row of turbines in the sea, arms still. Real sun trap, this garden, he said. Perfect for a conservatory. He took the iPad from his satchel and opened the design app. Mind if I take a photo? Sure. He put on his spectacles, not used to these glasses. You'll understand when you get to my age, he said, though there was probably only ten years between them. Everything goes. They're nice. You look like one of them Italian football managers. He hoped she didn't mean Trapattoni. For a while, he'd copied the younger lads with their tight trousers, pointy shoes and that 1940s fighter pilot hairdo, undercut and swept to one side. On Frank, that hairstyle had looked like a comb-over, so he kept it short now, welcomed the grey, going for the silver fox thing. He took a photo of the house and waited for it to load. This'll blow you away, he said. He cropped the picture, made the colours vivid. He drag-dropped an image of a Victorian lean-to to over the house. Just show her how it would look, if the company could afford to pay the suppliers and the fitters didn't screw it up. But when he zoomed in, he noticed something odd. In the photo, a child stood at the window. But nobody was there now. That your boy, he said, showing her the iPad. She tilted her head, bit her lip. I'll go and see if he's all right. After ten minutes, Mrs Cortez returned with two tumblers containing deep red Negronis, orange slices and ice, which she set down on an iron garden table before slumping into a chair. Don't usually drink on a call, Frank said, sitting opposite her. Is your boy okay? He sleepwalks, basically, and so he worries about going to bed. My girl was a sleepwalker. This is extreme. Once, I went in the kitchen, four in the morning, and Jodie's standing on a stool, making strawberry cheesecake, totally in a trance. There are worse things to do in your dreams, Mrs Cortez said, glancing back at the house. Before he goes to bed, he practices guitar for hours, and I wonder if he's overstimulated. Could be. You know how we cured Jodie? How? Massive bowl of cornflakes before bed. Worked a treat. It is hard to sleep when you want for things, Mrs Cortez said. Exactly. Frank gave her the iPad and explained how to change the dimensions and position of the superimposed lean-to. Mrs Cortez put her feet on the spare chair and worked away happily on the tablet. Tell me about the security aspects of the conservatory, she said. Air Force One, he said. Triple lock system. Good, she said. After a while she put the iPad down and he saw that she'd been playing Angry Birds too. Frank sighed, removed his glasses and took a big gulp of his Negroni.
Some customers followed your lead and others, men mainly, tried to dominate, tried to make you talk price too early. But Mrs Cortez didn't fit any of the categories. They both had one child and so they talked about what it was like for their kids to grow up without siblings. He admitted he was divorced and they discussed the pros and cons of marriage breakdown. Frank found himself confessing his regrets, which he rarely did. Night fell around them. How old's your daughter? she asked. Jodie's 27. We had her young. She got married two weeks ago. Congratulations. Do you like the guy? Rick, he said, rolling the R. He's all right. Clever like Jodie. But you have to let him win. What do you mean? He sulks if he loses. So if we're playing cards or going bowling, or even if we're having a kick around with my nephews in the garden, I always make sure he wins. I miss on purpose. Really? Makes him nicer to be around. I could never do that. Competitive, are you? I'm a nightmare. Ruthless. You're a better person than me. I try to be a good loser. But it was a nice day, the wedding. Yeah, you know. 300 degrees in the shade as it is these days. But Jodie was happy. He didn't tell her everything about the wedding. After Jodie and Rick had caught their taxi and he said goodbye to his ex-wife, Frank had driven, drunk, to the beach and stood on the stones, watching the Brighton Pier sign change from red to blue and silver, watching those colours reflected in the small white crests on the water. He was, he'd realised, a family man with no family. He'd thought about wading out into the sea in his good suit, just swimming towards the wind farm until his body gave up. But he couldn't do it on Jodie's big day. Besides, it was the Sunday after Pride, and a load of buff gay lads were cooking on disposable barbecues and they'd have dived in and saved him. He kept quiet about all that. I like your tattoos, he said to Mrs Cortez, pointing to the one on her leg. Puddles, the tattoo said in a vintage script, alongside her shinbone. What they called me when I was a kid, Puddles or Pudsey or Jemima Puddlefuck. How come? Long story. I'd like to hear it. You'd do anything for a sale, you. Times are hard. It was a prank. When I was about 12, me and my best mate Nicole were obsessed with Criss Cross. You what? The rappers. Oh, jump, jump. Frank remembered it from the radio. We wanted to be them. The white crisscross. Nicole wasn't white. Anyway, one Christmas, she got a camcorder and we decided to make a music video. So we put on our Joe Bloggs jeans and we went to this retail estate nearby. The Meteor Centre, it was called. You know the sort of place. Had a roller world, a PC world. A lot of worlds. Yeah. So it's January and we're in the car park early in the morning and it's been raining for days. No cars or anything. And Nick has this idea. We're going to jump in the puddles. She's going to put a slow-mo effect on it. Good concept. I was miffed. 
hadn't scotch-guarded me new Jordan Bordeaux's yet. But I'd have done anything for Nicole, you know. Frank shook his head. Nick went first, jumped in a few puddles, jeans clinging to her skinny little legs. Then it's my turn, and she guides me over to this particular puddle. She's like, this one is perfect, starts filming. So I jump up, legs together, arms by my sides, tombstone, but when I hit the water, my feet just kept going down and down and pretty soon I dropped about four foot through the ground into this bloody sinkhole. Came up to me braids. Jesus, Frank said laughing. Nicole knew she'd planned it all, taken the hazard signs away, everything. Oh, she got you bad. I come up, gasping for air, soaked through with this filthy water, mouth and nose full of grit and God knows what. Frank howled, and she's lying on the, on the ground, bloody convulsing with laughter, much like yourself. What a video, though, Frank said. We must have watched it a thousand times. These days it'd be a viral sensation. Yeah, I had a bloody viral sensation the day after. You must have been mad with her. I was until I saw the tape. It was like magic. You could pause it at a point where I was almost completely gone. I was puddles after that, forevermore. She still got the tape, Frank said. Miss Nicole? No. Mrs Cortez wrinkled her nose. Tell me a sales secret, Frank, she said. A trick of the trade. Frank tried to think of something not too shameful. He took a piece of paper from his satchel and folded it in half lengthways. You know, in-store canvases? What's that? Mrs Cortez said. People who stand outside home base under a gazebo handing out leaflets, you know. Oh yeah. Stand up. She did, and so did he. You're the customer, he said. You're walking in, and I'm waiting at the entrance. She strolled towards him, smiling. I hold out the leaflet, and you're thinking, if I just take one, it'll leave me alone, right? Not far off. Try it. She did. But now, I keep hold of the leaflet, applying subtle pressure with my thumb and forefinger, and I walk alongside you. It's a trap, she said. Both gripping the paper, they ambled across the scorched roots of Mrs Cortez's lawn. Now we're joined, he said, and you've no choice but to talk to me. I've got five seconds, but if I'm good, that's all I need to make you stop. She stopped. It's all about feel, Frank said. I've trained bodybuilder types and they're dragging customers all over the shop. People dangling from the end of the leaflet with their feet off the ground. I tell them it's like fishing. You've got to reel them in gently so the line doesn't snap. But you've got to remember, Frank, Mrs Cortez said, when you catch a fish, the fish sort of catches you too. He let go of the folded paper and they fell silent for a moment. Mrs Cortez shivered. 
I'm going to make some tea. Check on my boy. Will you come inside for a bit? She said. Close the deal. She rolled her eyes. It occurred to Frank that Mrs Cortez might be the most truly confident person he'd ever met. He waited in the lamp-lit living room. Everything throbbed with colour. The saffron sofa on which he sat, the lime green rug, the spines of the books. It was like she'd used the design app's vivid warm filter. Frank didn't know what the hell was happening to him. His heart banged. He's fine, Mrs Cortez said as she came in. Frank stood and she kissed him. Her mouth held the bitterness of Campari, the sweetness of orange, the heat of chilli. Her teeth bumped, but she didn't seem to care. They put their foreheads together. She held out the blank, folded piece of paper, their leaflet. He took it, but she didn't let go, and led him like that to the bedroom, a finger over her lips. He'd had a fair amount of sex in his forties, after the divorce. During that period, he'd found that sex had become increasingly influenced by pornography. Everyone tried to get into positions where they could look at each other or look at themselves or create some grandiose sex statue. But this, with Mrs Cortez, was different. It felt more like his earliest experiences in that she turned off the lights, in that they actually lay down on the bed, in that their bodies pressed together so he could feel her breasts spreading against him. He didn't think about his performance. No fancy stuff, no showboating, no posing. At one point he thought he might cry. It was probably a word for what it felt like. He lay there afterwards a ripple of energy charging repeatedly up the length of his body, the way beams of street light climbed over you when you drove a car at night. She slept straight away, but he couldn't. After an hour, he put on his underwear and crept into the garden to vape. The air had cooled, and he stood by the dry stone wall, peering through his cinnamon smoke, out towards the distant lights of the pier, it took a long time for his heart to slow, a long time before he could return to the bed and finally fall asleep beside her. He woke in semi-darkness to see Mrs Cortez striding naked through the room. It's not morning, is it? he said. He's gone, Mrs Cortez said. Who? My son. Gone where? Did you go outside? Well, I went for a smoke. Did you lock the door when you came back in? I don't know. Christ, what, he's left the house? Sleepwalking? She slipped into shorts and a vest, a long cardigan, and he felt guilty about his desire for her. Her movements had an urgency, but she didn't panic. What are you going to do? he said. Find him. Is it dangerous? Is he going to be okay? 
He's 11. He's on his own, half asleep, on the downs at three in the morning. You should call the police. You couldn't really see her face, just the shape of her. I did that last time. They found him on top of the cliffs by the marina with a sprained ankle, which is why we have a fucking social worker. If I call the police, the police will call social services who will find out that the salesman I was sleeping with left the door open. Frank said nothing. He was angry with himself. Silly mistakes. He always made these silly mistakes. I'm sorry, she said. That was out of order. It's my responsibility, not yours. This is what happens when I do things for myself. She left the bedroom and smashed around in the hallway. Frank got out of the bed, pulled on his trousers and shirt and went to her. I want to help. Come with me then. I've got the car. Car's no use. She passed him a heavy duty torch, put on her running shoes and glided through the kitchen to the back door. He stepped into his Chelsea boot snow socks and followed her her out into the garden, past the table where orange rinds lay in the empty glasses. One of the chairs now stood by the dry stone wall. Mrs Cortez cursed under her breath. She climbed over the wall easily, and Frank went next, hindered by the leather-soled boots and his tight hamstrings. He dropped down onto a slim path which led between two fields. How are we going to find him? This place is huge, Frank said. He's got a couple of roots, Mrs Cortez said. Their torch beams raked the dark. An odour leaked up from the hard ground and it smelled like human breath. Mrs Cortez shouted a shortened version of the boy's name as she walked through the fields. What's he called? Frank asked. Esteban. Esti. Frank had never said the name Esteban out loud, and he didn't know how. At the bottom of this field, she said, there's a path which leads up to the satellite tower and another which goes down towards Saltdean. I'll make for Saltdean, you go up to the tower. If he's not there, he sometimes heads for Lewis. What shall I do if I find him? What? she said, a sharpness to her voice. Well, I thought you weren't supposed to wake a sleepwalker. If you find him, bring him home. They arrived at the junction of the paths. Do you have your phone? she asked. He took out his mobile and entered the passcode, and she took it from him, dialed her own number. Her phone lit up in her cardigan pocket, and she killed the call. Ring me, she said, if you find him. She returned his phone, and he saw the tears in her eyes, her face clenched to stop them falling. Then she turned and ran through the tall white crops towards Saltdean, with its fast coast road and its cliff tops. Frank's path took him uphill. After 20 minutes of walking, he felt hungry, hungover, spent, desperate. Without socks, the boots gave him blisters, but he kept trudging on. The red hazard light from the satellite tower glowed at the top of the rise. The sky lightened in grey bands. Just a warning. 
he already missed Mrs. Cortez, but his only hope of ever speaking to her again was to find her boy. Rabbit scurried from the beam of his torch. He found a single work boot in the undergrowth and a guitar plectrum, a thin, neon pink piece of plastic, almost heart-shaped. Mrs. Cortez had said her son played guitar. Frank tucked the plectrum into the breast pocket of his shirt and continued up the track. He tried calling the name, quietly at first, unsure of where to place the stress. Then he raised his voice. Esteban? It seemed impossible that the boy would respond. But Frank's whole working life had required him to ask increasingly hopeless questions. Esteban Cortez. Sounded like the name of a famous person. A sign on the metal fence enclosing the satellite tower said danger of death. There was nobody around, only a few blank-eyed sheep. The landscape on all sides was dark and featureless, but for those small, brittle trees, permanently crippled by the downland winds. Even in the middle of a heat wave, bad weather left its impression. Beyond the satellite tower, Frank saw the lights of Lewis in the distance. He could make out the brewery and the prison, and he knew he wasn't going to find Esteban Cortez. For a moment, he considered walking away from the situation, but he parked his car back at the cul-de-sac and left his iPad and samples in the house. Eventually, he'd have to return alone. He would have to confront Mrs. Cortez with his failure. But for now, he carried on, along a narrow trail cut into a high, steep hillside. The valley revealed itself gradually, bale towers, and hunched, shadowy farm machines, tiny in the stubble fields below. The view made him queasy with vertigo, and he kept one hand on the chalk face while he followed the curve. As he stepped between patches of dry gorse, his torch beam fell on the figure of a boy pissing off the edge of the path, his stream glimmering as it arced into the valley. Esteban, he called. The boy squinted at Frank and then casually finished his piss, shook off the drops and tucked himself into his pyjamas. Are you Esteban Cortez? You have to take the plug out, otherwise it doesn't work, the boy said. You are? The boy's eyes were wide open, though he remained in his sleepwalk trance. In the torchlight, Frank saw a handsome eleven-year-old with a helmet of thick black hair and skin darkened by the long summer. His teeth were big for his face, which gave him the look of a little animal. Look, mate, you've got to come home. To your mum's, Frank said. He's sleepwalking. Esteban sighed. You have to unplug? Frank had half expected him to have an accent, Spanish or whatever, but he didn't. He didn't use his mum's northern vowels either. He spoke like a southerner, like Frank. He wore soft, light blue jersey pyjamas. 
The elasticated cuffs of the trousers stopped midway down his calf. He was barefoot. When Frank put a hand on Esteban's shoulder, the kid brushed it off, flinching. It's all right, buddy, Frank said. Your mum sent me, but you need to snap out of it. Esteban rubbed his face with one hand, leaving a streak of white chalk dust across his cheeks and brow. Looking out on the violet darkness of the downs, his breath came heavily. He was confused now, afraid. Frank reached out again, but this time Esteban pushed him and ran in the opposite direction. Wait, Frank said. He lumbered after the boy on the winding hillside path, but Esteban was as nimble as a deer and soon out of sight. Frank pumped his arms, and when he came around the bend, he saw him and called out again, Just wait! Esteban glanced over his shoulder and then lost his footing in the loose chalk and slipped from the path. Frank heard his sharp cry as he went over the edge and disappeared. Oh, shit, Frank whispered, slowing to a walk. He reached the skid mark in the chalk where Esteban had gone over. Frank looked down into the valley, holding the torch above his head, afraid of what he might see. The grassy slope was steep, but not sheer. The boy was balled up halfway down, clasping one knee to his chest. You okay? Frank called. Esteban stood unsteadily, leaning into the gradient. He limped up the hill for a few steps, but then slipped again. Wait there, Frank said. He placed the torch on the ground, sat on the edge of the path and began to shuffle downhill, using dried out hoof prints as footholds. Stay away from me, Esteban said. Frank stopped. I'm trying to help. I don't even know who you are. I'm Frank. I know your mum. How come I've never seen you then? We just met. Look, I came to sell her a conservatory and we got on. Anyway, it's my fault you escaped. I went in the garden for a smoke and I forgot to lock the door. Esteban looked up at him for a moment. How do I know I can trust you? He said. The question on every customer's mind. It took a child to ask it out loud. Well, said Frank, casting his arm out over the valley. Feel free to choose from one of the many other people rushing out here to help you in the middle of the night. Prove you know her, Esteban said. What's her name? Frank opened his mouth and closed it. Mrs. Cortez, he mumbled. Esteban gave him a quizzical look, as if Frank was a complete moron. For a barefoot boy in his pyjamas clinging to a hillside, he had some attitude, but he was right. Frank didn't know her first name. I'll call her, Frank said. She'll tell you about me. He reached into his pocket, but his phone had gone, fallen into the scrub somewhere. Idiot, Frank roared. Every time. Stupid fucking mistakes. Esteban lowered his head. Sorry, Frank said. I lost my phone. But listen, the tattoo. Puddles. Your mum got the nickname when she jumped in a massive sinkhole. That stupid old story, Esteban said. Frank slid down a few more metres. It's a good story, he said. 
You've probably only heard it once, Stevan said. He began to crawl up towards Frank. After the millionth time, it starts to sound pretty lame. It's funny, Frank said. Your mum is funny and kind, and she's worried sick. Stevan looked away. A kid would have done anything to be with his mum right then. Frank understood that sense of equality and care between the mother and child which sometimes followed a divorce, like his Jodie and Eleanor. Why don't we get you home, he said. I don't know the way. I don't know where I am. You can think about that when we get to the top. Frank extended his hand, like in a film, but a Esteban climbed beyond him. Back on the path, Frank led the way. Every few minutes, the boy grunted with pain. You were right, Frank said. Stones are sharp. You should sleep in your hiking boots. No need when the door's locked. Fair point. Frank took off his boots, revealing torn skin on the heels, smears of blood. Here, he said. You don't have to. Give me blisters anyway. He left the boots on the ground and Esteban stepped into them. They were a couple of sizes too big. Thanks, he said. They look good with your gym jams, Frank said. The kid made a sarcastic face. They continued along the path, flint pricking Frank's feet. A buzzard peeled out of the field below and soared up over the valley. Oh, Stevan said. Up ahead, a white light blinked in the long grass by the side of the path. As they came closer, Frank realised it was his phone, and someone was calling. He put it on silent, but it rumbled and shone. He picked the phone up and answered, as if he always left it there. Frank McCann, he said. It's me, Mrs Corsair said. I've got him, Frank said. I found him. Oh, thank God. Is he okay? Is he hurt? Yeah, no, he's fine. Totally fine. We're walking back. I gave him my boots. Anyway. She moved the phone away from her ear and he heard her sob. She pulled herself together. Frank, can I speak to him? He held out the phone and Esteban took it then wandered off, mumbling so that Frank couldn't hear. He'd found the boy. That had to count for something. And Mrs Cortez had called him by his name. It was a good sign. No, he thought, give it up. Dawn broke over the hill, and the scalped fields seemed to smoulder. Soon the dog walkers would emerge. He had a ten o'clock lead, a retired couple in Port Slade who wanted an orangery. Esteban returned the mobile. She wants to talk to you, he said. Yep, Frank said into the phone. I'm about 20 minutes away, she said. She was running. I can't tell how far we are, but I know the way back, Frank said. I'll meet you at the house, Mrs Cortez said. Frank wanted to say something more, to ask for her first name. But she hung up. Esteban strode ahead now eager to get home. School today, is it? Frank asked as they passed the satellite tower and began their descent. 
holidays. Of course, must be upsetting all this, the sleepwalking. Sleepwalking's fine, Stepan said. Waking up's the hard part. Hey, is this yours? Frank said, taking the pink plectrum from his top pocket. Esteban shook his head. Found it on the path. Your mum said you played the guitar. Do you want it? I don't use a pick, Esteban said. He held up his right hand. The nails were long, smooth and shaped. They had dirt beneath them, but Frank could tell they'd been well cared for. He'd never seen such thing on a boy of that age. Frank rubbed the plectrum between his finger and thumb. Do you play? Esteban asked. Nope. Never too late to learn. I don't know about that, Frank said. The house came into view, and soon Mrs Cortez appeared, cutting across the field towards them. Esti, she called. Esteban hobbled to meet her in the outsized shoes. Frank crouched by a dried-out dew pond, exhausted, and felt the soles of his feet tingling on the cool ground. He watched Mrs Cortez embrace her son, and he waved, but she had her eyes closed tight, so he looked over at their bungalow, which would never have a conservatory. This, he thought, was an entire marriage compressed into one night. They'd already moved on to the everyday arrangements, the tender post-split negotiations, the co-parenting, the handover of the child, the hollow sadness of wanting her, but knowing there was no chance. The kid was right. Waking up was the hard part. He studied the dew pond, a bowl of cracked, parched earth. Frank imagined Mrs Cortez as a teenager, unwittingly jumping into that sinkhole in the retail park, the meteor centre. He pictured himself plunging into the filthy water, his mouth and ears filled with the stuff. Silence, darkness, a blank place, away from pain and shame and other people. Like wading into the sea, or sleepwalking, a glimpse of oblivion. But there would always be the moment afterwards when the dirty water settled in the sinkhole and you stood up straight, gasping, in it up to your neck and you had to wipe your eyes, put your elbows on the tarmac and hoist yourself out again. The thing I really hate doing is the intros. <laughs> In fact, why don't, why don't we just make this the intro so that I don't have to... Uh... Okay, so I'm here with Edward Hogan. And... That's right, yeah. <laughs> I'm delighted to be joined by Edward. Yeah. Hi, Edward. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. Good. I'm all right. Now that nice we've done the intro, you. I'm feeling considerably better. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the fun thing is that we're putting this out after... The recording of your story so we can 
we don't have to worry about spoilers. Good, good. And so, yes. <laughs> so I can say that nothing happens in the story and everyone will know that nothing happens. Yeah, that's, that's known. And we can also discuss the ending, which I've been wanting to do ever since first reading the story a few, a few months ago now. Wow, yes. And the, whether, yeah. I think the thing that I most want to know is, was it always going to end the way it did? Did you see any kind of future for for the couple, for instance? Is couple even the right word? But. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. In terms of was it always going to end the way it did, I got... I, got, I had a, a good run with the story. Um, uh, you know, I got that, that sort of feeling when I was writing it at the start that I was sort of just walking around the kitchen table. I remember very clearly sort of going through this conversation between the two people. And I felt really excited and, 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 and pleased. And, um, and it was a sort of, it's, it doesn't happen very often. I'm really interested in that feeling of just being really, really completely absorbed. Um, and, it was happening and then you know work got in the way and stuff like that and I was stopped at the moment where the kid is gone okay. and, I was, and then I was stopped there for about a year and a half oh wow and I kept I kept going on so so I, I live quite near to where the story takes place and there's this place called um me and the kids always call it um, Casserole Hill. I can't remember because it looks a little bit like a casserole and you sort of walk around. It's on the South Downs. But it's, it's, it's a sort of um, elevated landscape above a valley where there used to be a village called Ballstein. And Ballstein was home to a, um, what would now be called a, a mental health hospital. But this was in the sort of 19th century, early 20th century. And then they used Ballstein in the war, in the Second World War, as a sort of place to go and train, as in shoot up the houses and stuff. So Bolstein was was raised, and there's there's no village there now, but the, the sort of ruins of it. So we walk around there all the time. Mm -hmm. So I just kept going on walks with, with my mate Theo and a couple of other people and with the kids. And I was walking thinking, okay, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? And, you know, sometimes with a short story, you know, especially if you're used to writing novels, you, you sort of go into a sort of plot mode, but then you realize you don't, you don't necessarily need to do that, or that's not the, the solution that, that really, if somebody go, leaves, if a child leaves and walks out into the downs, then really the solution is, is that they go and follow them. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be a conspiracy or, or, or something or some big surprise. They just have to go out. You know, you just have to play the consequences, as they say in screenplays, I guess. Um, yeah, but that the ending, um, I think a lot about short story endings because I find them very difficult. And what I've noticed is that lots of times writers who do things well, um, they have an image that they return to. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to do that, returning to that image of the, um, of the, of the sinkhole, I guess. Right. That's a real way of avoiding the question of whether anything happens <laughs> yeah, <still> <laughs> them afterwards. But I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say that because I always get that wrong. And then mm. I realize that if you've sat there for two years and puzzled over a story, and then you've written it and revised it millions of times, I probably I'm too dim in real life to make 
any more sense of it than I have in the pros. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm going to leave it there. What do you think? What do I think? Uh, yeah, good question. I think, well, I think, I think actually you've given the best answer, which is the, the story, <laughs> the story answers the question. And uh, that's it. That's enough. And of course, there is part of me that wants more. Mm. And certainly, as the story was going on, and they, they, you could see the connection growing between them. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're kind of joking with each other in the early pages. And yeah. you start to realise they're clicking very naturally. Yeah. I suppose there's always part of you as a reader that wants the wedding, um, you know, wants the Jane Austen <laughs> ending and wants things to, to resolve into the, in this very neat way. That's interesting. But, that, the, wedding, the, the wedding that's in there already didn't go so well. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah. you want another one. You want a better one. <laughs> well, I, d I mean, that's only a small part of me. I think, actually, I got the most satisfaction from the fact that, you know, life doesn't work out like that for, for a mm. lot of people. Mm. And um, your narrator, this, this lonely, quite melancholy guy, Hmm. if anything i suppose if i was going to speculate about its future is it would be that it's kind of similar to his the present in the story in that he is um would well perhaps i should i should throw this back to you in fact is he dissatisfied is that one of the the things about him um i, th I mean i think Looking looking back at the story, I think that um, I think that Mrs. Cortez um, has a real impact on him, and I mm. think that that is um, something that I can say for sure. Um, I, you know, I'm always interested when I hear other writers say, "Oh, I I just write line by line, and then I see what the next line does," and I always think. You liars, <laughs> you liars, you, that can't be true. But occasionally you'll have a moment where a line pops into your head and you think, oh, it seems a bit bold, but I'll write it anyway. And at, at one point when he's in the garden with her, Frank says, um, well, he, he wonders if Mrs. Cortez might be the most confident person he's ever met. And that line sort of came from nowhere. And I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting that he... Um, that he feels that way and that he's he's really looking at someone else and trying to decide on other ways you might live and and other attitudes you might have i suppose so i think that um i think and i hope that frank is is changed in his mood by by the evening and that maybe when he gets a bit of proper kit he might be able to <laughs> I'd be able to reflect on things, right. <laughs> especially if he manages to sell the orangery to the, the couple in Portslade. Yes, of course, there is that hope. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good deal. <laughs> and Esteban and, and Mrs. Cortez offer a nice kind of hope as well, I think. But partly because she is so confident and you think, you certainly as a reader, I, one of the things I liked was feeling that those two are going to be okay yeah yeah and I you know it it was clear to me writing it actually I had a really interesting conversation I work at the Open University and and um 
I've been chatting with a guy who works in psychology who's called David Capozzi and and um, we've been talking about various projects that we might do together I'm quite interested in psychoanalysis and writing practice and the things that they have in common and, and I'm quite interested in all these things of well you know lots of writers get annoyed when you say to them um, when you ask them where they get their ideas from <laughs> and I think that's really interesting basically because I don't have any ideas um, and I'd like to know how you get them and um, and I was talking to David about it and he'd just read the story he'd gone he'd gone online he'd gone to the Gali Berger site and and he'd read it and said I the first thing I'd never met him before and we had a sort of teams meeting and he came on and he said um Trapattoni because eh? he'd noticed that Trapattoni was mentioned that Italian football manager was mentioned in the, <laughs> in the thing so I thought oh wow you've read the story that's amazing um and we were talking about Mrs Cortez and he said you weren't in control of Mrs Cortez and that's why the story was good <laughs> he said when she brings out the Negroni he was like all oh, right okay Mrs Cortez that's cool um so I think, yeah, I, I, I feel sort of less, like I feel like I know less about Mrs. Cortez. Mm. And the bit where she sort of says about how they got a social worker and how it's been really difficult, you know, and she also says it's very difficult to do things for herself and she's a single mother. And, and so I do feel that she's really confident, but I do feel that she's facing, you know, challenges and uncertainty. Um, and I, I was quite, you know, I was quite interested in, in, in her, in her past. And, you know, I see her as somebody being from where I'm from geographically. Right. I mean, which, from, which is, which is Derby. Yeah. The meteor center is in Derby. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I was interested in her, but I, but I, I agree with David that I think that she was that, I was learning as I was going along more with Mrs. Cortez than I was with Frank. Right. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so she, she does, she, she does, does she derail things? I'm not sure. She does add a certain unpredictable spark. And like, for instance, the, you know, when, the, when Esteban has, has wandered off mm. and her reaction is almost frightening yeah the you know because because you by that stage certainly i felt so close to to frank the narrator that yeah you know how, how do you how do you cope with the this disappointed woman and you know her her terrible fear and also it's someone you don't he doesn't fully know and understand i got a strong yeah. sense of that i suppose yeah i mean she she is so in control of the situation and the i think that's sort of what david was saying that she might have been in control of the situation of the story as well but she was so in control of the situation in the garden and that was sort of you know that sort of felt quite important that she should be you know she's 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 organizing things she knows what her desires are and she knows what she wants and and she's very capable of of getting it in that sense um but then in, you know, in that situation, in, in the later situation, she's also in control. You know, she organizes Frank, she takes the phone off him and, and calls her own phone. She's, she's sort of sorting it out. But yeah, obviously he's not, she, she just takes more responsibility, I suppose, in the story, doesn't she, in, in, in lots of ways. And when he wakes up, yeah, he's, he's scared. He's, he's, um, 
he doesn't he doesn't know what to do or how to sort the situation out he just knows that he's at fault mm. so going back to the what you were talking about of uh, working out where ideas come from mm. i have to ask you about the fact that you you want have i got this right you you sold conservatories <laughs> so my dad has sold my dad came over to England from from Dublin when he was fifteen and uh, to play football. He 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 was at Derby County on a youth contract, and my mum was working at Derby County for Brian Clough, and her mother had worked there too. Um, so that's where they met. And uh, hang on, sorry to interrupt. You yeah. <laughs> worked for Brian Clough. Yeah, yeah. So both my both my grandmother, um, Irene Rini Redfern, and and my mum, Julie, they both worked for they both worked for Derby County while Brian Clough was there, so they knew him pretty well. Wow! Um, and yeah, and 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 Dad worked there, and that was sort of where they where they met. So, and then where was I? So yeah, so then he obviously he didn't get a full professional contract, and he went on to play very very high standard as a semi professional for for uh, Telford United, but he needed another job at the same time. And, you know, he'd left school at 15. So he got a job as a, as a salesman of, of windows and then later conservatories. And, you know, he's really good at it and, and very um, charismatic. And, and then, you know, later I worked for the same company that he worked for for a bit, but in a really junior capacity and not for very long. And the thing that I remember most about it is, so I was the guy who would stand outside home base handing out the leaflets. So that's right. where I got a little bit of intel from. Um, and, you know, you had to take the big sort of gazebo thing with you in your car. So I had the Fiesta and I remember driving up to like Rotherham one day and then coming back down the motorway and, and the boot popped open and the, <laughs> the gazebo's flying out of the back. But uh, yeah, so I wasn't, that was, that was about as good as I got as a, as a, a salesman of concern but I did loads of other sort of salesy jobs like selling newspaper subscriptions over the phone and stuff so I was used to trying to hit hitting targets and stuff right but yeah so a little bit of experience in the area but mainly from listening to dad on the phone and listening to um the lingo if you like the the language of it um, mm -hmm. yeah it was interesting um him reading the story and talking to me about it he, he thought it was really funny and he said um you still you still have a future in sales if you want it he said he said i still think i still think you could make some money that's <laughs> <laughs> so good to know <laughs> what? because because the frank had the patter or... well he i i think you know i think maybe maybe he thought he thought that frank had the patter or maybe you know he, he said he said he couldn't believe he hadn't sold it <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the alternative <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what yeah that's what you should have asked me not do they get together but does he yeah you know does he does he make the sale does he hit his target <laughs> i also i i had i've been uh, google stalking you mm. and um i see that you've also been a grass trimmer mm -hmm. A pot washer mm -hmm. uh, and the bloke holding the board in yeah. Leicester Square, which yeah. is what I wanted to ask you about. 
okay. Yeah, I, sp- I suppose there's there's a certain sort of convention about um about sort of uh, you know writers when they have their their little biogs that they often talk about those jobs that that were um, interesting and, and weird that they have when they're young and then somebody said this I can never remember who said it but then they said by, by the third book the third book is always about a guy working at university who's having a bit of a midlife crisis on <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way um, so yeah but but I did do the board thing for a while it was for um for a comedy club and it was it was cold and it was when I first got to London and I was holding the board up and then it just says you know comedy this way or whatever and you get the various various reactions from groups of lads walking through Leicester Square you're you're funny mate <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah you know it was that was an experience that didn't last very long at that actually um but yeah I think everybody has those kinds of little bits and bits and bobs don't they in there at the start yeah and I then, think about those early jobs a lot. I think about the job I had when I was about 19. I worked in a hotel. Um, I've started writing about that now. That's really interesting. And, and I, I feel like that, that group of people that I worked with, it's weird, isn't it? You know, you, you go to work with people and often in, in those days, I know I sound like an old man here, but like we would do Saturday and Sunday shifts and we would work three weddings in a day at this hotel and country club. And it would be like a, a shift that started at 10 and ended about midnight, 10 in the morning till midnight. And then we'd go out on the Raz afterwards <laughs> and we hadn't eaten the whole day. We hadn't had one break, but we were buzzing because it was such a, it was such a great, like there was just such, such a really cohesive group of, of brilliant people. I, I was realizing the other day that I, that I missed them all. Right. So I'll write about them, I guess. Good. <laughs> <laughs> you can bring them back on the page. Bring them back. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try. And uh, so, I wanted to ask as well about about the rest of your writing because um, what is it? It's now twenty twenty one, and you won the Desmond Elliott Prize. Yeah, the second ever Desmond Elliott Prize. Is that yeah. right? I, I think so. Yeah. So, uh, for people listening, the Desmond Elliott Prize is a really, really good prize for uh, first novelists and your novel Blackmore mm. won that yes um, and Hilary Mantel called you a major new talent was that at the same time that was so yeah so Hilary Mantel was is just I mean I, I, I know she's incredibly famous but she's she's such a generous person she was so generous to me when that book came out and you know I just sent it out um, or, or Simon and Schuster had just sent it out to all, all the sort of people they knew or, and, and I'd said some names of people whose work I admired and um, yeah and she got back and she was really supportive and she um, we, we, we did an event together in, in Budley Salterton at the wow. literary festival that she runs and um, she was just so she was just so nice and so supportive and I think she, she you know she does that for for new writers quite quite regularly and um, yeah, it's it so it was so great sort of being on stage with her as well. And you sort of, you know, sometimes when you meet people and you just think, wow, what, you know, what a brain. This is like, you can hear me now answering questions in this really <laughs> excruciating, 
uh, not putting sentences together away, but like, you know, she can answer them in sentences with grammar. It's quite, it's quite something to behold. So yeah, she was really, she was incredibly, incredibly generous. Yeah. But that was, I guess that's how many years ago is that? That's 10 or 11 years, isn't it? Yeah. It could, could even be 12. <laughs> <laughs> could, couldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but but you've, wow. you've, you've been writing ever since, uh, and you've also written a, a YA novel, is that right? Daylight a Saving. A couple, yeah. I wrote a, a couple, couple right. of, like, of YA novels. Yeah, da- Daylight Saving was um, was an attempt to... Um, I think I just... Maybe the... I think I wrote that when when Emily was pregnant and, and we found out we were going to have twins. And I'd, I, I just started remembering that old films that I'd watched as a kid like E.T. and Back to the Future and those films which are sort of family films and I thought I wonder what I wonder what sort of books I wonder if there's books like those <laughs> and um and I just sort of wrote this ghost ghost story set in centre parks um which well I shouldn't say it's set in centre parks I could get into trouble it's set in Leisure World okay uh, which is based in in a forest in Nottinghamshire and uh, yeah, and it's a bit of a, a, it was a bit of a ghost story. And I had really a lot of, a lot of fun writing that. And I was really, it was a really interesting and new experience of writing what I guess is sort of genre fiction. Um, and yeah, so, so that was, that was a, that was a good writing experience that actually. How is the experience different? It's, uh, so one of our writers, James Clammer, mm. he's written a, a, a YA story as well. Yeah. And does it does it feel different when you're writing it? Do you know you're doing something different? Like, mm. are you are you measuring each sentence in a different way? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Uh, I suppose I suppose one that I've thought about a lot because what I realised after I wrote that first one, um, and I had read some YA fiction, I'd read quite a bit of YA fiction, but I realised as well that I hadn't probably read enough and I realized that maybe that well I read when I read and and, uh, and spoke to other YA authors and I, you know that that thing that you get sometimes where you just realize that you're a bit of an imposter or you're not quite you don't quite you, you maybe don't get it in the same way that they do and, it, and it's an interesting thing because you go into a whole world as well. So I, I'd, 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 I'd written that book. I'd written it quite quickly. You know, Black, Blackmore had taken me eight years to write. And then suddenly I wrote this book very quickly. And mm. I thought, wow, that's amazing um, that that can happen. And, and then Walker Books took it on. Um, I think it was, it's quite a tough sell. Because I, th- I thought basically I've written something which is like, I don't know, um, I thought I thought there was an ex- for me it was like writing an explosion on every page. I thought this is high drama. And then when I sent it out there, they were like, "It's a little slow." It's, it's a little. I was like, "Right, wow, okay." It's a little quiet. I was like, "Quiet, <laughs> mate. This is Ken Follett. This stuff." Um, and so that was an interesting thing, you know, that uh, in terms of pacing and stuff like that. And then obviously, you know, I went into the sort of world of of. Um, I met some some YA bloggers as well and 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 did all that stuff and talked to them and and you know there's a really interesting a whole interesting community around it and I realized I don't know I realized maybe that I 
um, that that maybe the the first one had been outside of it, and so I hadn't been worried about that stuff. And I think I started to get worried about it, and I started to second guess it a little bit after that first one. I was I was thinking, what do I what do I need to do for this? Whereas with the first one, I was just having fun and just following it through as a sort of ghost story with a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter and I was really happy doing that and 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 um you know and there's there's some comedy in it as well and there were adult characters in it and later later on I had conversations with people about YA stuff and adult characters in YA stuff where they were sort of discouraging putting adult characters into it and sometimes discouraging humour and sometimes discouraging of um, talking about sex and stuff. So, and for me, remembering being a teenager. Yeah, those are exactly the things you want. <laughs> sex and humour and, and then also that um, conflict with, with, with adults. I thought, well, oh, that was, you know, those things were all um, interesting to me mm -hmm. then. Um, and so, yeah, so I felt I, I lost... I lost my way and and I think there are people out there writing brilliant and incredible and interesting and innovative formally innovative stuff in in YA fiction and um yeah I th you know I think there's a lot of rich material out there mm -hmm. does this mean that you're you're not going to write more YA or is that too much of a <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm not I'm not going to say uh you know I can't I can't really, um, you know, I, I never really know what's coming next. And that's, that's, you know, that's the nice thing really in lots of ways. Um, but you know, that I had the, the, um, the, the novel for grownups that came out in 2020. Yeah. 2020 in the, in the, in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. That's the, the electric, the electric. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, you know, and that took a long time and that, that was really interesting. And I felt like, yeah, I felt like I had real breakthroughs in the middle of that book as well, which is really, uh, um, which is a really strange, strange thing to happen. And I think that parts of that book, I can see where Frank emerged from mm. to do with that book, and and I can see where a certain, where a certain new little style emerged from, something that I was slightly happier with. Um, or felt slightly more comfortable with, or felt slightly more sort of exhilarated by. Um, so yeah, so that was that was a really that was a really useful and interesting process, and I did it as part of a PhD. So I've got forever now this record of what it was like um, to write that, because you know, along with your when you do a, a novel as part of a PhD, you also write this critical thesis alongside it. So you have all these notes which you keep and arrange about um the decisions you made and and um and the research you did and and and, and the reflections you had so that was a that was a really intense process and it was you know it's amazing to be working in a university i, I just think it's such a a privilege not just with with the students and stuff but also just to be around loads of people who know loads of stuff <laughs> it's just really great Ex experts all over the place how was it having a novel coming out in the, the middle of the pandemic? Yeah, it was it was weird. Mm. Um, I think you know, 
I feel very much like, I feel very lucky really. Um, you know, in, in everybody's, everybody's lives has been affected by the, by the pandemic. And, you know, when you, when you work at a university and, you, and especially one which is the size of the Open University where you hear about lots of students and lots of staff and what they've been going through, you just think, um, you know, I just feel really fortunate that everybody here has been well and that um, so far and that, and that I've been employed. So I've, I've, felt, I've felt lucky with that stuff. And so really when the book came out and we were sort of deciding, people were saying, do you want it to come out now or are you going to wait or whatever? I mean, in terms of what actually happened, um, <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't make for a successful launch. Mm -hmm. um, but there were just, you know, there were just so many other things on, on my mind and on everybody else's mind at, at that point. You know, the kids were off school, mm -hmm. homeschooling, and, you know, people were really struggling at work and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, I think it's something that I might be able to reflect on and look look back on later and, and and see what happened but really it sort of passed me by I, you know what I was saying about having ideas and stuff like that I really feel and I know this might sound like a little bit of a cliche but it took me a long time to figure out that the that the best things that happen to do with writing happen at your desk and um you know I I, I don't think I, I it I think it took me, yeah, it took me absolutely ages. And I think I probably realized it properly in the middle of the last book that I wrote. Um, and that's where the exhilaration comes from. And, and that's what I'm quite interested in. This thing I said about finding ideas, which is a little bit of a, a pat way of putting it, but really it's about finding a sort of state of concentration and absorption that I'm really interested in. And that's why I want to talk to, psychoanalysts and, and psychologists about that so um so yeah so the other stuff is nice when it goes well um <laughs> that's about it I, I guess I should ask you about um you know people are always very interested in, in writers you know the the classic Paris review questions about your technique and how you find space to write and hmm. whether you use a pencil or a word processor <laughs> yes. if you want to hit us with a bit of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure sure I mean yeah like I say I, um so I've, I've I've usually been a sort of early riser a kind of five o'clock person getting up and getting the work getting the writing done before the kids wake up and before the day starts and take them into school and then go to work but during the pandemic that sort of went by the wayside so I was getting up at and again it's not a complaint because I realized I was really lucky but I was getting up at five doing my day job till the kids woke up then schooling the kids for a bit swapping with my wife who fortunately also works from home and then doing a bit more of the day job and then doing the day job into the night so um so my rhythm has been a bit off <laughs> for a while um but when I when I get back to it properly again yeah for me, it's, it, it's partly been about getting rid of that temptation to try and believe that you can do things for eight hours a day, like you can write for eight hours a day. I can't now because I have a full-time job. But I think before, you know, even when I was doing my MA, there was that sort of feeling of pressure of like, you know, we work hard, we graft, 
and um you know that's what my folks have always done and so i should do it too and it doesn't always work with creative stuff so probably mm. on the ma the best thing that happened to me was um oh, you live in norwich don't you that's right yeah so uh, you probably remember baguette express do you in the baguette in the market they used to do um roast meat baguettes <laughs> and they, was that, was that on coronary corner the infamous <laughs> no these were good these were good quality good quality okay. i had a mate actually on my on my course who once complained that the uh, the mayonnaise wasn't even hellman's and uh, i uh, i mean i was i was very close to losing my rag uh but yeah i used to wash the pots down in the basement of baguette express and actually wow. getting out of the house it was like to say right you will now work this amount of time and then you will go out and you will go and do a job, um, made me much more productive. Right. And I've gradually shrunk that amount of time <laughs> and put more responsibilities in the way. But um, yeah, you know, if I can get two really good hours in, in the morning, that just really sets me up for the day. Mm -hmm. um, one, of, one of my teachers at, at UEA, Michelle Roberts, said she, that she felt like she could do anything in the afternoon if she had the morning to write. Um, and I think, you know, I think I feel like that about, about getting up at five and stuff. But I guess that won't last forever. You know, I think you have to be sensible about shifting your routines. Because, um, you know, the kids go to bed at nine o'clock now, so so can I. And then I can get up early, but later they won't. And then we'll see. <laughs> and, and can I ask what, what you're working on? Yeah, I'm working on short stories. Right. I've been working on short stories in a really dedicated fashion for about two years. And it sort of started with this little nagging thing that I would get sometimes when I had a few beers, which was, mm, yeah, you know, a real writer, because real writers write short stories, right? Um, and I couldn't really do them. I couldn't crack them. And it's always been the form that I've loved most. Um, and so I thought, all right, I'm going to try and try and do this because I, you know, I love this form and, and I can't write in it. And um, I'm going to do it by, by reading. I'm going to read all of the short stories. <laughs> and um, so I, in 2019, I think it was, I started trying to read one a day. I ended up that year reading about 500. Oh. And, um, and then I've tried to keep to one a day since then. Um, so I've read loads. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, what was the last one I read? You will enjoy the last one I read because it was, I'm consorting my notes here, Ushi Gatwood's The Clinic. Oh, yeah. That's one of yours. <laughs> I read that on your, on your website. Oh, great. Fantastic story. Um, yes. So yeah, so I just, so... And I've been writing them. And part of it is, part of it is, is a practical thing. Like, you know, with quite a busy job, it feels more possible. It feels more possible to live, to finish something while you're still fresh with the impulse that made you start it. Mm. To finish a draft, I mean, like, obviously, then you, you work on it for two years. But to finish that draft quite quickly while you're still buzzing with it i think in, in in a novel um you forget what that original impulse is and that's great in some ways because that changes as, as you change um but 
but I'm really, I'm really enjoying writing the short stories and they don't, you know, they don't always work, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you feel like one does it, it feels like, you you know, I'm a bit of a control freak in general and feeling like you can really go over, it's really practical to go over every line. It's, it's very satisfying for a control freak. <laughs> You can monitor things much more closely in the short stories. <laughs> yes, <though>. yes. <laughs> I mean, part of this is being, I mean, the, 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 you know, the amazing thing, you know, getting this, getting this, winning this prize from you guys. It's, I mean, it's just been, you know, I, I said that thing about the nice things happening at your desk, but I mean, this has, has been like the best thing that has happened, I think, in, in, in my sort of outward facing writing career. And, you know, People have sort of read it and and my friends have. And, you know, I've got mates from back in Derby and we've known each other since we were four or five years old. And they don't tend to read my novels. And if they do, they sort of get to about chapter six and then they say, hey, it's just too depressing, Ed. It's just too <laughs> depressing. And, and they've read this story and, you know, some of them have liked it. Brilliant. Yeah, it's been, that's, been, that's been a, you know, it's been just such a holy good thing to be able to and has brought me into contact with you know reading the other shortlisted stories those two fantastic stories um by lauren and, and nora and and um and has brought me into contact with lots of other people as well and and um yeah that's a really nice thing oh well thank you <laughs> this, this is that's nice to hear this i feel i feel like we should stop now when, when i'm kind of <laughs> and all have a good basking cry. in the glow yeah that's right <laughs> but um ah oh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you edward so uh, oh thank you very much and thank you for the wonderful story as and well thank you for saying kind things about it and um yeah it's a it's a pleasure to chat to you sam so many thanks to edward hogan i hope you enjoyed listening to that We've got quite a few more podcasts in our archive now, so please check those out too. And do subscribe so that I can speak to you again soon. Yeah.